Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. Hello, I'm Oliver Dowson and this is the third episode on our series on trade agreements. Today we're going to look at past successes and failures of trade agreements and to see what lessons we can learn from them to benefit us for the future. So quite apart from the general agreements on tariffs and trade, otherwise known as WTO terms that we explored in the last episode, there are currently over 400 active bilateral and multilateral free trade agreements that are enforced today. Some of them are pretty recent. The ones that the EU struck with Canada and Japan uh, in the last couple of years, for example. Uh, the one of the news is the one with Mercosur, South America, um, but that needs ratification by all the countries. So it'll probably be a few years more before that comes into force. Some of the trade agreements we're going to be looking at, though, go back decades. For this series, I've been reading up the studies that uh, have been done into their impact, the successes and failures, and looking really to see what we can learn. Such lessons are useful from two points of view. One is governmental. When it comes to negotiating new trade agreements, what risks need to be avoided, and which opportunities should be grasped. You, however, our audience, many of you entrepreneurs, but all of you consumers and taxpayers, will be much more interested in the second reason for looking at the history of trade deals, which is to strip away the exaggerated optimism and doubts that we hear and get a better informed understanding of what benefits can realistically be expected, and especially for the business people amongst you, the risks you need to be aware of that could turn a trade deal negative for you. Most of the academic studies of past trade agreements have either related to the big US deals with developed countries or with those between major economies and developing nations, such as countries in Africa. The first time started with the sole intention of growing international trade between the parties. Well, the second was also planned to incorporate a significant element of international aid. All of them bring up interesting points that could affect any future trade deal with any country. It's a vast subject and there are many studies, a lot of which, perhaps because they're influenced by the organizations that undertook or funded them, appear to me to show clear elements of bias. I've done my best to strip that out and stick to the facts. And one would hope that facts are easy to come by, but I should start by admitting that it's actually quite easy to bring opinion, and with it bias, into any study of trade agreements. And that's simply because over the life of a free trade agreement, there are always so many political and economic events going on, nothing whatever to do with the free trade agreement, that otherwise impact trade. Best example, perhaps, that's a factor in all of the studies, is the crash of 2007-2008. 
It affected different countries in different ways. But generally speaking, consumption went down. Where possible, consumers in rich countries switched to cheaper products, often imported from lower-cost countries with which their country has a free trade agreement, whilst businesses in developing countries cut back on expensive imports from richer countries, trade agreement or no trade agreement. How can one separate out the effect of the free trade agreement from that of the financial crash? Well, one can't. All studies that attempted have had to make big assumptions. And even where the researchers have done their best to be objective, many readers will see bias in their conclusions. But let's do our best here to be objective. There's certainly enough common ground between the studies to be certain of many things. I'm going to start by talking about NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement that dates back to 1994 and eliminated most of the trade barriers between the USA, Canada, and Mexico. Some of it came into force straight away. Some of it took 15 years to come into force. Even if you're not in North America, you'll probably have heard of it, as it's the first of the ones that Trump wanted to get out of or renegotiate because he claims it's unfair to the USA. Well, in some ways, yes, but nevertheless, from most points of view, NAFTA has been a resounding success. Over the 25 years since it was agreed, cross-border trade between those countries has more than doubled in real terms. Of course, not all of that is attributable to NAFTA, and nor has that cross-border trade turned out to be what was originally expected. From our viewpoint, which is studying the effects of free trade deals and what we might expect from future ones, the most significant relates to industrial employment and the place of manufacture. It's true that US employment is much lower now than it was in 1994 when NAFTA started. It went down from about 6.5% to about 4%. But the actual mix of jobs is entirely different. In the US, manufacturing has reduced dramatically, while services have grown exponentially. The example that's usually cited, and indeed it's the easiest for us to understand, is car manufacturing. NAFTA really was intended to encourage U.S. manufacturers to build plants in Mexico. The belief, then, was that by providing well-paid jobs in Mexico, the economy would converge with that of the USA and illegal immigration to the U.S. would reduce. Great idea, eh? Didn't work. One of the reasons was that the introduction of NAFTA um, coincided with a recession in Mexico. Another was that the Mexican government of the day then didn't use the new tax revenues they got from the new U.S. manufacturing plants to build new infrastructure, which would have created more jobs in Mexico, and as they'd promised in the negotiations. Perhaps the most important factor resulting from NAFTA, though, now often overlooked, is that by eliminating tariffs on agricultural products, it became uneconomic for Mexican farmers to grow corn, which they'd done before. That was, it was known that that was likely. And the original idea was that they'd plant new and more profitable crops. They didn't. They just stopped farming altogether. But back to car manufacturing. The big US manufacturers, GM, Ford, Chrysler, built plants not only in Mexico, but in Canada. In Mexico, it's obvious labor costs were much lower. In Canada, labor costs were about the same. But other costs, such as health insurance for employees, energy costs, things like that, meant that it was still cheaper than the USA. And in both countries, other operational costs were also lower. Of course, these factories were new. So they incorporated the latest technology 
and that meant the productivity was much higher than in the old US plants. So not so many employees were needed. The supply chain, that's other manufacturers of components for the cars, had to follow their customers to Mexico and Canada. Smaller companies that couldn't or wouldn't relocate over the borders lost out and many simply folded. So, in summary, it made sense for the car manufacturers to close old plants in the USA, build in Mexico or Canada instead, and import the finished product tariff-free. A similar situation occurred in textiles and many other sectors of the industrial economy. There were industrial jobs still left in the USA, but they were fewer in number and increasingly more skilled. Part of the economic and political impact in the USA itself. That was considerable, but complicated. Tens of thousands of auto workers in Michigan, steel workers in Ohio and Pennsylvania, textile workers in Louisiana found themselves out of jobs. As the jobs moved out, the power of the unions declined dramatically. Millions, the whole population across the country, however, benefited. All of them found their cars and clothes a bit cheaper and US corporations saw their profits rise. Overall, measured as national gross domestic product, GDP, the economy gained, but at local level, the effect was devastating. Recently, the disaffected, who still haven't been looked after after all these years, have risen up. So the news is regularly full of the effects of populism and backlashes against what's now been termed globalization. Meanwhile, the numbers of people trying to cross the Rio Grande into the USA has continued to grow, although only a minority of those now are themselves Mexican. Most studies have concluded that these unwelcome trends could largely have been avoided had the relevant governments followed through on all the good intentions they had that they set out when NAFTA was being negotiated. Just as Mexico didn't invest in infrastructure or other improvements, the USA did nothing to assuage the industrial job losses. Instead of investing, governments chose to reduce taxes. The rich got richer. Many, many thousands of words have been written about NAFTA. There are many other things that could be said about it. But from our point of view, let's summarize some lessons relevant to those of us in developed countries who seek to negotiate and benefit from new trade agreements, especially for those of you who manage own or work in SMEs, small and medium enterprises. Firstly, any trade deal with a significantly lower cost economy will mean that manufacturing will progressively move there. If you're in the cheaper country, that'll mean that companies from the other country should move operations and jobs towards you. If you're in the more expensive country, operations and jobs will move out. Big businesses always chase opportunities to increase profits. If you're in an SME, you'll probably be anticipating being able to export more of your products. However, be cautious. That opportunity is only significant either if the other country has a demand for your product and there's no better value local alternative, or if the current tariff barrier is very high. The risks come if you're part of a supply chain and the major focal point customer moves out. You'll need to be ready to follow, or perhaps better, sense the opportunity and move first. It's not just about manufactured goods. Agriculture is just as significant. Even though Mexico was and remains poorer than the USA, the elimination of tariffs that came about with NAFTA decimated Mexican corn growing, as we've heard, chicken rearing, and other food production. US farmers were and are simply more efficient 
and have a more productive combination of landscape and climate. So the lesson here is beware. Even if you're in the cheaper country, more efficient producers from the other country could easily overrun you. Thirdly, and this is probably a big and hopeless help, hope, I should say, the participating governments need to anticipate and plan to manage the labour displacement that's inevitably going to ensue, whether that's manufacturing or agricultural jobs. No one's ever done it before, but it needs to be attended to and anticipated. What if you're in the services sector? That's 80% of the UK economy, nearly as much in the USA. Well, little or none of this is really relevant. The services are outside the scope of most trade agreements, and that's because tariffs aren't really relevant. What is is regulation, or the elimination of it. In the case of NAFTA, the three countries kept their own services regulations. And although the cross-border trade in these has grown massively over the years, it's not attributable to NAFTA. Moving away from NAFTA, studies have shown similar results from other US trade agreements, plus some additional interesting points. With the benefit of an agreement that was implemented in 2011, eight years ago, South Korea has managed to double its exports to the USA, but has kept its imports more or less level. The reasons are complicated, but critics point out local protection measures within Korea outside the scope of the free trade agreement that make it too difficult for US producers to compete. On the other hand, there might be sour grapes from the Americans as the EU-South Korea deal the same year increased exports to the country by over 50% in three years. The USA doesn't have a trade agreement with China, but as we all know from other Trump tirades, has a huge trade deficit. It's interesting to look at because this shows that the imposition of tariffs in a country like this has very limited impact. In this case, mainly because the Chinese country, the Renminbi, is not free-floating. So the government could and did simply devalue it. That makes their imports uh, more expensive, but their exports cheaper. Get round the and they get round the tariffs. There are many other, but obviously smaller countries around the world where there are opportunities for governments to benefit their exports and impede imports simply by manipulating their currency. In the case of a free trade agreement signed with one of those countries, it could actually easily mean that the results would end up being very different to those anticipated by the other country. In the last few years, Canada and the EU have implemented a free trade agreement. And that's already brought up an interesting, if possibly apocryphal, example of the need for strict rules of origin clauses. In this case, they're there, but obviously incomplete or not fully thought through. The example I'm referring to is that of Mercedes cars. So the story goes that demand for a certain model uh, was so high that the German plant making it couldn't keep up. And so they decided to source the cars from a plant in South Africa instead. In order, however, they needed to keep the Made in Germany label on it. But all they had to do to satisfy the rules of origin was to perform QA on some of the components in Germany and then ship those to South Africa to be built into the cars that could then be transported to Canada with the benefit of the EU trade agreement because they were, in quotes, made in Germany. What about trade agreements between rich and developing countries? In almost every case, the richer countries have promoted such agreements as primarily to help the development of the poorer countries, and never more so than in the case of those between the EU or North America and African countries. Almost every retrospective analysis has demonstrated these to be disastrous for Africa. 
As we explored in episode one, a key element of free trade agreements is supposed to be the elimination of protectionist measures in the participating countries. Countries such as those in the EU and the United States point to and complain about protectionist measures in countries like India and Zimbabwe. But it's somewhat hypocritical. Elimination of such measures should level the playing field. The idea is that lower cost economies benefit by not only being able to export without hitting walls of tariffs and taxes, but also they don't have to go up against subsidized producers in the richer countries. But in the case of the EU, that's never been the case. Agriculture is, always has been, and remains heavily subsidized. African countries, which have huge potential for agricultural development, and unlike Europe, a large workforce willing to plow the fields, can produce more cheaply, but not sufficiently so as to compete with the EU subsidized prices. Another problem for developing countries is that they often rely pretty heavily on import duties as the easiest and most reliable taxes that they can actually collect. It's often not easy or even possible to replace that revenue elsewhere. Especially in the case of Africa, the foreign direct investment and the technology transfers that were referenced in the free trade agreement never actually happened, probably largely because they relied upon independent companies who simply don't trust that their investments in those countries will be safe and generate a return, free trade agreement or no free trade agreement. Meanwhile, FTAs coupled with foreign aid are often used to strong arm developing countries into buying equipment and arms from richer ones. A small number of very large companies in rich countries benefit, while the population of the developing country gain little or nothing. Looking away from Africa, but still at EU trade deals, rules of origin have been applied really strictly. In some cases, not like the Mercedes one, but in some cases they've more or less negated the value of the agreements to the other country. So. Balkan countries, such as Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, hope to grow their clothing industries when they sign trade agreements with the EU. However, the rules of origin in those agreements state that not only must the clothes be made in that country, but the fabric itself, either made in the country or in the EU. So clothing manufacturers now have the added bureaucracy that they have to prove and document where the fabric originated, but more to the point they can't use cheap fabric imported from China or India. And that's claimed to have cut the expected benefits of those countries by 98%. I've looked at many studies of other free trade agreements in other parts of the world, but I find that the lessons are generally the same. There's huge economic benefit to be had from free trade agreements, but significant risks too. They need to be understood in advance and properly managed, not only by government, but by businesses large and small too. Free trade agreements have never proved to be a silver bullet, whatever politicians might tell you. But done right, they are well worth the years of negotiation that go into them. So. Join me for the next episode, number four in this series, where I'm going to wrap it up by exploring the reality of opportunities and the drawbacks that future trade deals for the United Kingdom might have outside the EU. Given that the UK economy is 80% services, it's also a reason for exploring the role of free trade deals for the services sector and what can realistically achieve, be achieved or can't be achieved in the short term. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying this series and more importantly that it's giving you food for thought. I and 
the producers of the Growth Through International Expansion Platform, welcome all and any comments you may have. And I'm open to individual discussions of any points you'd like to explore further. Just get in touch. Until next time, goodbye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast. I really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations. We post new content every week, so please do click on the subscribe button and follow this, the Growth Through International Expansion podcast. You can also find the transcript, other articles, and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos, and podcasts, and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson, wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. Mm-hmm.